1: And welcome to the Three Lions Podcast. My name is Russell Osborne and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. One where we look at our national football side. If you're new to the podcast, welcome along. You have joined us at our 2010 World Cup episode. And of course, if you're a regular listener, hello as always to you. I know many of you will have tuned into all the previous episodes in this series, but if you haven't, no problems. They are all available at your podcast provider of choice or at threelinespodcast.com. And as I say, this is the South Africa 2010 episode. South Africa was my third World Cup that I attended, following Japan and Germany in 2002 and 2006, respectively. Once again, I went with my good friend Dan, and also a workmate at the time, and someone who has become a good friend of mine, also a travel club member, Tom. Great memories of new cultures and experiences. Memories of going on BBC Five Live with Nicky Campbell at the bottom of Table Mountain. Memories of getting stopped by motorway police in our hire car. With all the scare stories prior to the tournament that the police had been looking out for bribes. No, we were fine. I've got memories of going on safari. Memories of meeting Asamojian at Sun City and the rest of the Ghana team. Met Bruce Grobbler too. Castle beer. Tusker beer. Although it almost didn't get off to the best of starts. As landing, I somehow left my wallet and passport on the plane. But proceed it did. Three of us, with our luggage, squeezed into a tiny white Hyundai hire car, heading towards Pretoria, where we would be based. Of course, it was the first to be held in the African continent. It had only taken 19 previous tournaments. As we mentioned, the previous 2006 episode, South Africa had bid for that one. But that was ultimately hosted by Germany. This time, FIFA said the competition would be held in the continent of Africa. It was down to whichever countries to bid for it. Five nations put themselves forward. Egypt, Morocco, South Africa and a joint bid between Libya and Tunisia. FIFA then decided they wouldn't allow joint bids. So Libya and Tunisia quickly withdrew. 15th of May 2004 in Zurich FIFA president Seb Blatter announced that South Africa were the outright winners beating Morocco by four points 14 to 10 Egypt well, they didn't gain any vote points Nelson Mandela the anti-apartheid activist and first president of South Africa would lift the World Cup trophy following the announcement Just like 2006, and all the cover-up and corruption that went with the bid, it once again raised its ugly head here. Talk of big amounts of cash being transferred to FIFA executives. Chuck Blazer even admitted to it. It was a large-scale story at the time. On to the qualification. 205 teams from six continents would battle it out for 32 places. Or should I say 31? Because as hosts, South Africa didn't have to qualify. But holders Italy, well, they'd have to try. England, we were a seeded nation, and we were drawn in Group 6 of UEFA's qualification, alongside Ukraine, Croatia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Andorra. We'd finished top, ahead of Ukraine, who would advance to the playoffs but would ultimately be knocked out by Greece. We played 10 matches, won nine, lost one. That one was away to Ukraine in Dnipro, a game that saw Rob Green sent off after only 12 minutes. Under Fabio Capello, we would score 34 goals and concede just six. There was the trip to Kazakhstan, which I've already spoken about on a previous episode. If you've not heard it, it's a great listen. Memories from a couple of England regulars. There were home and away victories over Croatia, which were particularly satisfying, given that they had prevented us from going to Euro 2008. As I mentioned, it was a 32-team competition. One with 13 from Europe, four from the Asian Football Confederation, which included Australia, six from Africa, three from Central and North America, five from South America and one from Oceania, New Zealand. A major talking point in qualification, or this was actually one of the two-legged playoff matches, but it was during a match between France and the Republic of Ireland. Late into extra time, Thierry Henry clearly handled the ball to prevent it from going out. He then provided a cross for Gallus to put France through. Henry has never been forgiven by the Irish. Slovakia made their first appearance as an independent nation, as they had previously played in 1990 as Czechoslovakia. North Korea made it for the first time since 1966. Honduras and New Zealand, the first time since 1982. Algeria, since 1986. The major absentees... Well, they were probably Poland, Sweden, Russia and Croatia too. South Africa would incorporate 10 stadiums across the country to be used for the finals. I experienced four of them. Soccer City in Johannesburg, which would host the final. Cape Town Stadium, which was a stadium purpose-built for the competition. I also went to Rustenburg a couple of times, known as the Royal Bafokung Stadium, it was a two-tiered open-air athletics track kind of a stadium. And also, a Mumbala Stadium in Nelsprey. A stadium famous for its zebra-coloured seating and giraffe-like support columns that go high up above the roof. A decent stadium, that one. But even at the time, when I went to see Honduras against Chile, the outside surroundings of the ground, it was still behind wire fences. It was unfinished. And the other grounds in use was the famous Ellis Park Stadium also in Joburg, Durban's Moses Mabhida Stadium, Pretoria's Loftus Versfeld Stadium, Nelson Mandela Stadium in Port Elizabeth, the Peter Mokaba Stadium in Polokwane, and finally the Free State Stadium in Bloemfontein which as we'll find out wasn't a happy hunting ground for England. Once qualified England were grouped in Group C with the United States, Slovenia and Algeria. A group that the English newspaper, The Sun, made a front-page headline with the acronym EASY. E for England, A for Algeria, S for Slovenia and Y for Yanks. Hmm. England would base themselves in the Royal Bafakong Sports Campus just two miles from their location of the first match against America in Rostenburg, It was a complex with all the mod cons. Certainly there was no complaining, even though manager Capello had banished the WAGs from coming, those that caused quite a stir four years earlier. Capello, well, he had a squad to pick. He was appointed following the failure of Steve McLaren, to get us to the 2008 Euros in Austria and Switzerland. He was appointed in December 2007, so he had plenty of time to judge his best players to take to South Africa. He chose the following 23, all of whom, for the first time since 1998, all plied their trade in England. Goalkeepers, there were three. David James of Portsmouth. He was the oldest at 39 years old. Rob Green was at West Ham. Joe Hart was at Birmingham City at the time and he was the youngest of the squad, aged just 23. Defenders, Glenn Johnson of Liverpool. Ashley Cole of Chelsea. Michael Dawson of Tottenham Hotspur. He caused quite a stir because at the time he was uncapped. John Terry of Chelsea. Stephen Warnock of Aston Villa, Matthew Upson of West Ham, Jamie Carragher, Liverpool, and Ledley King of Tottenham Hotspur. Midfielders, eight of them. Captain Stephen Gerrard of Liverpool. At the time, he was the most capped, with 80 to his name. Chelsea duo of Frank Lampard and Joe Carl, Michael Carrick of Manchester United, Aaron Lennon, Tottenham Hotspur, James Milner of Aston Villa, and Gareth Barry and Sean Wright Phillips from Manchester City. Then up front, four strikers. Wayne Rooney of Manchester United, Emil Heskey of Aston Villa, and the Tottenham pair, Jermaine Defoe and Peter Crouch. Now, as regular listeners will know, throughout this series, I like to take a look at the other little aspects of the time. Those that make a World Cup special. All those little things. The music, the telly, the poster, the mascot. This tournament is no different and it had a variety to go with it. If you're watching on the BBC, their theme tune was performed by the Dallas Guild World Cup team and is called Rainbow Nation. It opened up with a performance that included various images of the country and participating teams, all in a colour spectrum. (laughs) ITV, much like the BBC, had a colourful introduction with many iconic players and moments, all set to a soundtrack by Vusi Malasia, a singer from Pretoria, with his track When You Come Back. I have to say, neither of those intros ring that familiar with me. That's probably because I spent 10-14 days over there watching the local stations. But of course, there were many other songs that came from that period including the most popular one that featured Colombian singer who was big at the time, Shakira, with the song Waka Waka. This time for Africa. It was played everywhere. Back home, Dizzy Rascal teamed up with James Corden for Shout for England. The proceeds went to Great Ormond Street Hospital, a children's hospital here in England, in London. The song was basically a rip-off of Tears for Fears' original song from 1984. An awful version of a classic song, in my opinion. Shocking video, too. Grab that tambourine. Well, we can go from yeah, one I'm extreme to beans. another here 2010 also gave us Grandad Roberts and his son Elvis With Meat Pie Sausage Roll Meat Pie Sausage Roll <laughs> Come on, England, kiss a go Meat Pie Sausage Roll Come on, England, kiss a go We've got a corner Television theme tunes may not have been the most exciting, but in my opinion, the poster used for the tournament was one of the best in recent times. Sometimes, simple is best. Set against a yellow background, a silhouette of the continent of Africa, turned into a man's head who is looking at heading a ball from above. Around the man's head are the slight shadow colours of red, yellow and green. And whilst it was a competition held in South Africa, it was one that was made to feel like it was the whole of Africa welcoming the world. And on the poster, within the Africa continent, was the wording 2010 FIFA World Cup, South Africa, 11th of June, 11th July. And then the mascot, Zakumi was a cartoon leopard. A leopard with green hair, no less. And the name Zakumi came from the word zar, which is the two-letter code often used for the country. And Kumi is a widely used word in many African languages that means ten. Of course, ties in with the year 2010. He's dressed in white and green. The sporting colours of South Africa. I'd like to welcome to the Three Lions podcast, Leeds and England fan, Glyn Davis, who I spoke to for the the Euro series when I've done that, Euro 2012, Poland and Ukraine. You can find that at Three Lions podcast. Glyn, hello, mate. Hello, Russell. Good to speak to you again. Likewise, likewise, 2012, uh, Poland and Ukraine. We're going back two years prior to that. Do you think your mind can stretch back there? Yeah, I, sh- I should be able to go that far back. But don't don't try and
0: interview me in about another 10 years' time remembering that far back, though, mate. I don't <laughs> think I'll be able to do it
1: then. Well, we, we won't need to do that because, obviously, we've got your book, which I'm going to plug straight away. Uh, you wrote a book about what? Called About the Game, The Lot. If anyone hasn't read that, I uh, suggest you do. Um, and no doubt we'll come on to that at some point um, throughout the chat. But thanks, as always, for for joining us again. South Africa, 2010. How did this all come about for you? Yeah, so um, yeah, South Africa was an interesting one because although it's
0: the same sort of time zone, it you couldn't get any further away from home really, could you, and, and still right. do that? And it, it, it was a bit of a money challenge um, getting down there. So I had to skip the first two games and uh, sort of plan to go out. Um, with, with good luck, I would have got the second game. Um, but go out for the the end of the group and then into the, the knockout stages so you um, missed
1: you missed America you watched that at home i guess did you
0: yeah I watched watched America in the pub yeah um and then uh, was planned to to fly down with good fortune would have been able to get the uh england algeria game but uh, l- luck wasn't on my side because i i was flying into joburg and the game was in cape town so uh, i uh i had to miss that game but i i uh, had to um Watch it out there but there's a bit of a story behind that I can tell you in a second actually
1: well there there are worse games to have missed
0: yes it's yeah it's probably the worst game there's ever been isn't it oh so. tell
1: me about it i I must admit i um I hold my hands up to this one I'd had a few beers that day, and in the heat of of cape town i I fell asleep in the uh you see the first half or second half of that game sitting behind a goal <laughs> yeah, you did yourself a favor you should have slept through the whole game mate I should have go on then whats what's the story on this one?
0: Yeah, well when when we uh, we booked our flights just before the the draw was made just to be able to get it affordable and everything. And yeah. we were flying out via Amsterdam and Kenya to get down to um to Joburg for the game. And we, we could have seen I think it worked out eighty percent of the group games we could have seen. And by sheer bad luck, um England <laughs> was one of the twenty percent we couldn't get there in time for. Um so what we decided to do is sort of bring in another football reason for that day, you know, find a different event. And um we managed to find that Speon Cop was uh between Johannesburg and Durban. And obviously that that's what a lot of the home ends of uh various football teams, you know, like Liverpool, Leeds, Chef Wed, you know, yeah. the home end is named after Spion Cop. Um so we decided to go and visit there, find out more about it all and everything, and um managed to uh book into the Spion Cop Lodge which overlooks uh, the, the, the cop and uh, to, you know, to find out more about it all. Got there for the night of the game, had had a meal and the, the owner of the lodge, a guy called Raymond, came to talk to us and um, asked if he could join us uh, to watch the game after the meal. So uh, we, of course, obliged and were sat there and uh, he was watching it. I'll I say he didn't yawn, but I think he was probably close to, <laughs> to yawning, but uh, didn't know much about football or anything. Um, so we were sort of educating him a bit on the England team, and he was asking loads of questions. And um, it, it transpired through uh the course of the evening that um, the reason he was interested in the game he was he was actually going up to see the England team two days later to give oh. them like a motivational speech on Spion Cop and why it got its name and why it was so important in history and everything. Wow. Um, so uh, yeah, we, we didn't know that when we first went there, um, but uh. When he got all the information he could out of us, he then offered to take us up there the next morning, um, for sunrise, um, to actually see the cop and the view and everything and told us a bit of the, about the history of it, where actually the British had, uh, been trying to attack the, um, Boers and, had, um, dug in, um, sort of at sunset and, and foolishly had dug in not far enough up the, uh, the mountain. And when sunrise came, they were there to be picked off. Um, by the Boers and everything. And um, hence, hence the reason for the name to be is copies, because there's this big view from up there looking down all over the valley below. And it, it turns out the battle that day was actually, I think to this day, it's still the highest casualties in a, a square mile of battle um, ever in history. And on the battlefield that day were a few greats, mate. So people like Churchill and Gandhi and um, even Baden-Powell was up there. So. Oh, uh, had the uh, snipers um, picked off those three, we wouldn't have had our great leader. India probably wouldn't have been the place it was and no one would have been in the scouts because uh, yeah. those three guys were all up on the battlefield that day. But it was it was an amazing thing um, to do in place of actually seeing the game and sort of made up for the fact that England-Algeria
1: was so abysmal <laughs> um, the night before. So some of the stuff that, that you told this fella, Raymond, had he then... The chances are it's relayed to the England team in some motivational speech. Yeah,
0: well, I, we were trying to get him to encourage um, Wayne Rooney to uh, be a bit more attacking and, and score a few more goals for us because um, he, he, he he didn't score any, did he, in um, those first two games? Um, but yeah, we just w- we wanted him to be a bit more attack minded and go for it. So uh, yeah, we were just going through the players and, and telling him a little bit about them, and you know, Gerard and Lampard and. Uh, Milner and you know all stuff like that. So, uh, but I have no idea what he said. But uh, it must have been something good because we did manage to actually get our only victory of the of the tournament straight after we'd been speaking to him. So I, I guess he did some good, mate.
1: Ah yeah, and, and in your part as well, you've obviously uh, played a part in that in that result. Of course, it was the Slovenia game played down at Port Elizabeth where uh, a Jermaine Defoe goal sort of settled that one. And was that a game that you uh, that you got to?
0: yeah we we uh drove down from joburg sort of drove down through the day and uh, got there late in the evening to uh stay in a place just up the coast called port alfred right. um lovely sea view and all of that kind of stuff and then drove down into um port elizabeth the next day to what at that time was called the nelson mandela stadium i, th- I think they've renamed it since okay um but uh yeah sort of went down to see the game obviously all the slovenians Amazing turnout from the English fans that day. Although, you know, we were halfway around the world. Um, there was there was a great turnout in the stadium. Um, but yeah, the, the drive for us was about a 1,300 mile round trip, of course, for about 36 hours. So uh, yeah, a li- little bit of a sore bottom after all that driving.
1: Who did you go with?
0: Um, went with a really good mate of mine called uh, Mark, who sadly has subsequently passed away. Yeah. Um, and uh, his son, Ben. Uh, and one of our other mates couldn't actually make the journey down because of that driving distance. He, he had to stay in Joburg, but, uh, he came with me to, uh, the next game versus Germany, a guy called Duncan. Um, uh, so there was four of us out there. There was a load of other mates out there as well. Um, people like, I think, you know, Howard, um, and Dave and Marshy and people like that were out there, but we, we didn't travel with them. And, uh, unfortunately didn't get to meet up with them at the game, but, uh, we, we were all out there.
1: Yeah. So did you get to see any other games um, whilst you were out there in, in South Africa? Yeah, went to see one in Cape, uh, not in Cape Town, in
0: um, Johannesburg at uh, Soccer City. Oh, uh, what a stadium versus. that was. Always. Oh, it was an amazing stadium. On, from the outside, all lit up at night and, um, you know, all the different sort of browns and um, oranges and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, went to see Brazil versus uh, Ivory Coast. And um, had a had a great view and a brilliant atmosphere. Apart from, of course, all the blooming vuvuzailers that seem to keep going off the whole time. Yeah, this is um,
1: something that I I haven't mentioned yet. Actually, the vuvuzailers and I, if, if anyone that went will, will remember these, they're uh, just awful things. And and the one thing it was actually when I went to the Soccer City Stadium, um, I think I saw. Argentina, South Korea there, I think. And it was there that I, they were just going off all the time, all the time. And it wasn't the noise that got me, to be honest. It was when I saw the amount of spit that came out the end <laughs> that I thought, "No, nah, these things are just, <laughs> they're not right. I don't think there was ever a Vuvuzela in the
0: England end at any of the games. Although, quite although right. most of us probably bought one to bring home. Yeah but uh yeah we we were we were the one team I think where the uh Vibuzelis were at the minimum, but th- that day when Brazil were playing, it seemed like everybody in Africa was there with one they made an cr- incredible noise um not really what football's about, I don't think you know I'd rather have all the singing like I'm sure you would yes um but yeah we we took our England flag and flew it proudly yep. behind the goal up on the upper tier and um Sadly, it got um, cut down by FIFA and uh, taken away because I think we'd slightly obscured one of their TV screens and uh, never got it back. So that, that's where I lost my um, my flag was at the World Cup with uh, watching a Brazil game. It's a blessing in disguise, really, Russell, because I, I don't know if you know any other people who take flags, but it, you end up having to get to the ground early and make sure you fly it in a good spot and then you're waiting around afterwards to get it back. So it it was kind of nice to to finally lose it at that that game, <laughs> so I didn't have to get to any other grounds before you know too early in the future.
1: Well, yeah, I must admit, I I had the same issue um, in South Africa, and it was actually at the Algeria game. Um, I had a, an England flag hanging from a uh, from an upper tier, uh, my own fault really, that I, I put it in a upper tier, and I was sort of down below, and uh, I went and hung it, come back down. And then almost at full time, said to uh, my mate Tom, who I was there with, I said, I'm just going to nip up, grab a flag. And we saw it there. And uh, and Tom, I don't know, took his eyes off it for a moment whilst I went up. And I went up there, went to find it. Someone else had had it away. Um, So, yeah, I know exactly how you feel. But, I mean, the fact that FIFA took your flag down, uh, I kind of wonder if if we'd ever see someone like Seb Platter holding it upside down as, as what sort of... Ultras do when they steal a flag. Yeah, either
0: that or he's turned it into a duvet to sleep under over night time. Of, but yeah, we no. When we got up there, there was like it was right next to one of the TV gantries. That the the guy was saying he saw some um, bloke come up, all suited with a knife, and he just you know he cut the strings and and off went the flag. Oh dear, yeah, Yeah. hundred forty quid up the up
1: the they they're not cheap these flags, are they? no no not at all so the the big game came up England against Germany in in Bloemfontein by this time I was back home so I watched this one um in the pub but but you were there
0: yeah it was um yeah an amazing day uh sort of got down there the the ground felt quite English to me um sort of going in um even to the point that um the food they were serving was uh Steak pies, believe it or not. So lovely. F- felt like I was back on the terraces at home. <laughs> Wonderful atmosphere again inside. And it was it was certainly the Germans that I, I encountered, good-humoured and everything. But, yeah, we were in the um, opposite end to uh, Frank's goal and um, up high, um, w- w- watching down on it all. As I say, great atmosphere in there. But, you know, obviously things started to go, the wrong way for us um and and all of that but uh you know Upson got us got us a goal with with his head I, th- I think his it's second his and o- only second goal and he's only ever scored against Germany I think he might have that is true, after true. That. yeah um but uh yeah he was uh leapt up like a salmon for that <laughs> one I think it was, it was a wonderful goal um but I remember when just coming up to half time when um Lampard shot um went in. I mean we were at the other end of the ground and we we could see that it went in.
1: Milner. Defoe, that's a lovely touch. Lampard! Brilliant! It was it, oh, surely crossed the line. Oh, oh.
0: It's, it's so far in. Even more blatantly than the World Cup final goal in 66 went in, you know. Yeah. Um and uh how the referee didn't see it I, I'll, I'll never know because it was a good couple of feet over the line wasn't it um, even even the keeper neuer he knew it had crossed the line oh yeah absolutely i mean everyone in that stadium apart from two people knew that, that that had gone in of course we went absolutely crazy up in the stands yeah and although although it was seats sort of went down about three or four rows over the yeah. seats um, how how we didn't break limbs i don't know but it was absolutely fantastic and um got up to all celebrating, couldn't believe our luck to then think, God blimey, the Germans have kicked off rather quick. I don't know how they got, got the ball up the the hour in that so fast. And then suddenly like all around us, it wasn't Vuvuzailas. It was like people's mobile phones going off full pinging and everything. And of course it was all the messages from back home sort of going, that was in, this is bloody criminal. Um, You know, and we're like, what, what? We actually hadn't even realised until, you know, you look at the scoreboard and yeah. it was still saying 2-1. It, yeah, it was just absolute feeling of disbelief, mate. Absolute feeling of disbelief.
1: And it just then sort of transpired through the team, which obviously then went on to the, the second half when Muller got a couple more. 4-1 we lost that day. Well, we We played fairly well. I mean, up up until the, I think the Frank Lampard goal. Obviously, the the Germans. um, I mean, Urso. I seem to remember our day a great game as well. But uh, if if one thing it it did introduce, and whether you like it or not, it was probably the moment that VAR was announced.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think they had any choice after that, did they? No, Um, because I mean, putting aside how they implement VAR now. you know, had it have been in place at that time, it would have been two all. We'd have gone in at half time. The momentum was definitely with us. Yes, um, yes. and um, you know, God only knows what would have happened. I mean, could have been going on to the next round. I think. I think the next round was against Argentina, um, which would have um, been oh so sweet. But um, yeah, it it just it did the absolute opposite, didn't it? It knocked the stuffing out of us, really. Germans went on to win four one. I I don't think they deserve four one. By the second half, obviously they did deserve to win. But um, yeah, had, had only Frank's goal have counted, then history I think would have been very very different for us all, mate.
1: Yeah, I, I certainly think you're right. So uh, yeah, England were out once again, and this, this this time at the hands of the Germans. So uh, yeah, must have been a lot of lot of unhappy England fans sort of making their way out of the ground.
0: Yeah, it was it just sort of walked back to the car in in total disbelief. And me and my mate, Dunk, you know, we got in the car, drove back to Joburg. I don't know, three, four hours drive. I've no, no idea how long, but um, not much was said until we got to the outskirts of Johannesburg, knocking on sort of midnight, yeah. one o'clock sort of time. And um, I looked up in my rearview mirror and I thought, this is a bit weird. This this pickup truck sort of pulled out and was right up close behind us. All right, And um, I sort of said to him, here, Dunk, um, do you think we're being followed? So he, like, flipped down his, um, you know, the modesty mirror in the passenger side. Oh, yeah. And uh, so we were both following this um, pickup truck in our mirror, and they were, like, getting aggressive up behind us and that. And then we drove past a sign, and it just said, beware carjackers. No. And the the next thing I know, we're in this – Horrendous chase through the the outskirts of Johannesburg, trying to get back to where we were staying in Sandton, with these guys trying to overtake us and knock us off the road. And I I was so regretting being being so tight and having only rented a cheap hire car (laughs) (laughs) because there wasn't much power. To this day, can't believe we got away from them. To be honest, Russell, it was it was quite scary. Um, We we phoned ahead to our um, where we were staying a place called moonflower and um jamie the owner we we'd got to know him really well told him what was going on and he said just just get yourself here glenn and um you know we, we managed to get there drove into his like enclave type thing he he shut the electric gates and you know we, we managed to get away from him and um walked inside went into his bar and there was this he's like do you want a beer we're like you're too white mate and used a few more words than that obviously yeah. Um, and uh, as he went down to pick up the, the uh, beers, there was this loud clunk. And I looked over and there was this whacking great big revolver that he'd put down on the on the tabletop. <laughs> so he'd, he'd come out all um, talled up to rescue us. Um, so it's a bit like being in the Wild West, to be honest, mate. And uh, although although South Africa is such a beautiful place and there's so many nice people there, it's pretty scary as well. I, I don't know if you encountered anything like that out there or.
1: Yeah, I must admit we, we were staying with, um, a friend of mine's, um, family and we were in Pretoria and we were sort of told a few things. Obviously don't, sort of don't stop at the stop signs, um, which sounds really bizarre or or just keep your wits about you. One of the things that they, they told us was some people would stand at the side of the roads when maybe you're stopping in, in amongst traffic and you know, the people that will maybe try and flog you some sunglasses or I, th- I think people trying to flog you bin bags at the side of the road, I seem to remember <laughs> as well. But um, they said one trick that they use is if they look in your uh, like your footwell of your car and maybe see something that is of interest, um, they put a bit of chewing gum on the top, like on your roof, on the side of whatever they've seen in the footwell, and then you carry on down the road and uh obviously they're working in teams if like you stop at the next set of lights or whatever and someone sees oh look there's a bit of chewing gum on the top of there there's obviously something that is of note and worth having away that was one of the stories i heard and i scared the life out of me and i was driving out there as well it was i can yeah fully understand how how scared you may have been like um driving back from uh from the germany game now i imagine it was sort of a bit of a white knuckle ride oh mate it was horrendous
0: absolutely horrendous and um we didn't have sort of any sat nav or anything like that we were going by maps right um so i had no idea where i was going it was just like turning left turning right you know trying to get away from them and by sheer fluke um, we ended up in the right sort of neighbourhood so that we recognised where we were. And yeah. we were able to like swerve off left at a point where they were trying to get past us again. And luckily there was traffic lights there and uh, there was a car going across them. Um, I just pulled out in front of it, mate. I didn't <laughs> care, but um, they they had to uh, hit the anchors and that, that was the bit that we needed just to be able to get away. But, yeah, you know, driving around there, I mean, we we did go up um, another time. We went up to Rustenburg where, you know, the England-USA um, game was. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, we just went up there to see um, like a little game lodge type thing. And um, on the drive up there, we drove past a, a township. And I remember we were like saying in the car, blimey, I wouldn't want to live there. Doesn't look too nice. And we drove for about another three or four, five minutes and we were still driving past the same township and it was just getting worse and worse quality of shack shall we yeah. say i mean yeah. shack is is overstating how nice it was um yeah so it was it was pretty bad um the the other thing that struck me was when i was up at rustenburg was how much um, smoke there was in the air where they would like burn in the fields and stuff like that and i i did wonder after the tournament if you know, if if the England because the England team were based up in Rustenburg or nearby, that's right. I think. Yeah, and I, yeah. I did wonder afterwards if if they were impacted by the smoke, which you know did that impact on their performance as well? Because um, certainly had me coughing for a while after after the tournament. Um, still,
1: yeah, I mean, not- I remember Rustenburg. I think I went to, I think I saw New Zealand play someone there, um, and I seem to remember it's just a, a very dusty environment like that. That whole surroundings was very dusty. So, yeah, I mean, as well, if there was if there were burning stuff around there, you can well imagine that there was, um, yeah, smoke yeah. in the air and this oh, not ideal preparation on the lungs and all that for for high performance athletes. Yeah, the uh, the the place we
0: stayed, they they told us it it, it was kind of like a way that that some of the locals would do almost do graffiti. They they couldn't do anything to get back at society, so they would just like burn the odd field. Um, you know, it's their way of doing vandalism kind of thing. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So it was it it was it was quite bad in places up there. Still, I mean, don't get me wrong, it was still beautiful, and um, you know, we we got to see sort of nature at its finest. You know, you see a, a a wild elephant or giraffe or or lion and stuff like that. A- absolutely stunning. I, I remember we, we were in one game reserve, and they like I said, "Whatever you do, don't open your window or get out of the car." So, of course, we're thinking, yeah, we won't, uh, no worries about that. And then we, we, park, we park up and uh, we're sort of near this waterhole and there's all these elephants down, like, getting a drink and everything. We're trying to get, take photos, you know, through the car windscreen and try to clear the windscreen with the windscreen wipers and washers, couldn't do, so sort of, oh, what the heck. So we got out of the car and we took these photos and everything. Oh. And um, no worries, got back in the car and we start driving off down the road and – see this sort of zebra walking along, because they're quite tame. You know, they're, they're sort of used to cars, so they're not mm. that bothered with them. But there's this zebra walking along, and, um, I don't know, 20 seconds further along, there's this lion stalking oh. this zebra. And then it suddenly went through our heads like, oh, my God, we got out of the car. Do you know what I mean? We, we, we could have been the uh, the starter course for the lion before <laughs> it went on to have its zebra. It could have <laughs> been me or Dunk. And make those windows were never been done up so tight in your life. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Oh, some of the nature there. I mean, I went on a on a safari there, and some of the stuff you you get to see it was fantastic, like up close. If if people get the chance to to go on any safari, go and do it, or get the chance to go to to South Africa um like it's very i remember at the time it was they were saying about sort of some of these shanty towns um that were there the townships and that but once you're there it's it is a bit of an eye opener um some of the stuff but but cape town like seeing table mountain as well it's just just fantastic scenery there yeah i mean that
0: i really wish i'd been able to get down to that um I i must admit though when we when we drove down from Joburg um to the, the Port Elizabeth game, there were a lot of uh equivalents of tabletop mountains on, on the way down there, you know, the flat top mountains. Yeah. You know, throughout the country. But uh, yeah, I mean what what a brilliant place to to actually watch football, you know. It, it was great out there. Um, it's just a shame England didn't um really hit any form and and, and the one time we did, um the referee didn't <laughs> see the swimming goal go in. Yeah, in the other way.
1: But you uh you wrote about it all in a uh in the book about the game, uh which i mentioned at the beginning. You're gonna do a um a follow up to this, are you not? Yeah, there's a there's a there's a sequel. It's it's more or less written now. Um,
0: right. but, um it's it's uh it goes on to talk about um the Euros, twenty twelve Euros in um Ukraine. And I I was aiming to have it out at the start of the year, but obviously with with what happened there, I, I didn't want to be uh, sort of putting anything out at the time where, you know, all the atrocities were going on. Yeah, I understand. Um, I understand. But uh, I've sort of done a bit of deliberating and have decided to leave it as it was originally written on, you know, what happened in Ukraine, how how great it was, how we found the country and, you know, the, the experiences that we had because it was fantastic. You know, we did things like we went to – nuclear missile base, we went to Chernobyl, went down a salt mine and played football um, underground and sang the national anthem for Jeff Shreves and the Fox TV crew and everything and ended up on Radio 5 Live. So there were were loads of fantastic things that happened and I'm still going to publish it, but I I just didn't want to do it when it really kicked off initially in in Ukraine, you know, but hopefully within the next few months, mate, it will be coming out and I'll, I'll definitely give you a shout about it.
1: Yeah, please do. Is he not going to maybe include Qatar in it.
0: No, there's there's a few more games um, in between um, that book and Qatar, mate. There's uh, all of the trips out to Brazil and a few more novels to stuff. come. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I'll, I'll keep you busy reading wise for a oh, few years. Too right. Well, uh, well, as always, I'll, I'll plug to the uh, the to the book about the game, and then obviously we will. Uh, we'll undoubtedly, speak when uh, when the next ukraine one comes out i look forward to that yeah definitely russell definitely glenn thank you very much for your time as always um it's been great just reminiscing about um 2010 and south africa yeah it was uh brilliant to talk to you mate and as you say
0: great to reminisce about it it, it was it was a great time out there it's just shame shame the football wasn't as as we would have liked it to have been
1: It was an interesting tournament for some little anomalies. Honduras' squad included three brothers, Jerry, Johnny and Wilson Palacios. And the game between Germany and Ghana had brothers on each side. Jerome Berteng for Germany and Kevin Price Berteng for Ghana. Hosts, South Africa became the first nation to be eliminated at the group stage round. This, despite beating France and drawing with Mexico. Eventual winners Spain topped their group, but did lose their opener to Switzerland. Which meant that New Zealand, who drew every one of their group games and finished third in their group above Italy, they remained the only unbeaten nation in the tournament. Paraguay and Ghana would reach the last 16 for the first time. There were 13 teams from UEFA, but by the time the group stage finished, only seven remained. But come the quarter-finals, they were triumph over all. The Dutch beat in Brazil 2-1, Germany putting four past Argentina, and Spain beat in Paraguay. The other quarter well, that saw Uruguay beat Ghana. The semi-finals pitched the Netherlands against Uruguay and Germany against Spain. The Dutch came through to make their third final. They'd lost, though, both the 1974 and 1978 finals. And Spain, well, this would be their first final in their history. Spain, well, they were the current European Championships, having won Euro 2008, and were largely considered to have one of the best teams ever featuring seven from the prolific Barcelona team of the time. The final, it did have some English representation. Howard Webb was the referee, but unfortunately made a name for himself. In what some referred to as the anti-football final, he dished out a record 14 yellow cards and sent off John Heitinger. In a gritty match, it also featured a foul by Nigel de Jong on Xabi Alonso, a studs-into-the-chest type of challenge. It warranted a red card, one which Webb acknowledges to this day he got wrong. Casillas would save Spain on numerous occasions, especially from Iron Robin, before the game was settled in extra time thanks to a goal from Andreas Iniesta. So there we are, the story of the 2010 South Africa World Cup. Many thanks for listening and also to Glyn Davies for joining me for it. I hope it's brought back some memories, good or bad. Not many to go now. We'll soon move on to Brazil for the 2014 tournament. Where once again, I'll be joined by an England fan who was there, who can give us some memories and anecdotes from the time. Please stay subscribed and you won't miss it. In the meantime, don't forget the show is on all the major social media channels. Go search it out. Give it a like, a follow and a review on the likes of iTunes would be great too. So until the next time, take care of yourselves. Cheers.